I'm going to invite you to do something that's a little strange. It's going to be an exercise of trust as we start out. Whether you're in a sanctuary or watching from home, I'm going to invite you just to quiet your heart, to put both feet on the ground, take a deep breath, and to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine with me. I want you to imagine that your pastor and his wife invites you into a a strange-looking building. You pull up to the building, and it's pretty plain. And with excitement, they walk you out of your car into a building and down the stairs. As you walk down the stairs, it's pretty uh, dark, a little cold. And you walk into a room, and in this room, there's this, this cube. And this cube looks like some state-of-the-art technology. And Pastor Kenny invites you to walk into the cube, and and Sister Amy tells you that everything is going to be okay, just trust the process. And so you do. And you step into this cube, and all of a sudden the lights go out, and a screen comes down. And you open your eyes, and on that screen flashes before you every great moment of your life, every great birthday celebration, perhaps every great accomplishment that you had in school, every sweet moment, every favorite meal, every sweet embrace. And all of a sudden, your heart is just filled with joy And I just want you to think about what those moments would be and just hold it there. Hopefully, in those moments is when you met Jesus. Hopefully, in those moments is is when he came and he got you from the pit of despair, perhaps from depression, perhaps from being entangled in sin. Hopefully, in those moments is the moments of when you joined this church with excitement, and committed yourself as a covenant member. And then all of a sudden, the screen goes black, and another video starts to play. And it's a picture of all of your hard moments. It's a picture of perhaps you being yelled at. It's a picture of perhaps you feeling abandoned or betrayed. It's a picture of maybe you sitting in a room full of people and feeling lonely, feeling misunderstood. And all of a sudden you start to weep. And then just as you're seeing that, more lights come on. You open your eyes and the screen begins to go down. And suddenly as the screen goes down, there is a person standing before you in flesh and blood. And you are looking eyeball to eyeball with this person. And as you look, you realize that this person looks just like you. In fact, it is a a version of you 10 years from now. And my question for you this morning is, what do you see? Do you see a person who is full of energy who is happy, 
who is big souled? Or do you see a person who is bitter? Who is cantankerous? Who's exhausted and worn out? You can open your eyes. As we look at Jesus' sermon on the mount today, we want to see that Jesus is inviting us into a way of living and a way of being that will cultivate us into being people who flourish, people who experience true happiness and true joy. And the pathway to true happiness and true joy is found as we come to him through a door that is low and cross-shaped. The path to true flourishing, to to true happiness, to to, true joy happens as we continue to live a life that is lowly and cross-shaped. A life that is submitted to his lordship. A life that is an apprentice of him. And 10 years from now, if you are going to be a person who is full of happiness and joy and big soul, it is because you have committed yourself to the yoke of Christ, to the way of Jesus. It is because you have come and accepted his invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It is because you are living before him with great humility. And if 10 years from now you are bitter and cantankerous and tired and exhausted, it is because rather than taking his yoke upon you, rather than being his apprentice, his disciple, rather than living according to his way, you lived it in your own strength and according to your own way. Jesus wants to cultivate you into the most beautiful version of yourself. And the way that that comes about is by you sitting at his feet daily and allowing him to transform you. These verses that we look at are verses that are often called the blessed attitudes or the beatitudes. These attitudes that, uh, quite frankly, are countercultural. I mean, Jesus calls the people on this mountain to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, and to be a persecuted community. And he says that these people who have these qualities are, are blessed, are blessed, but these qualities doesn't seem like the qualities of those who are blessed. They are oxymorons. In fact, these are qualities of what we call God's upside-down kingdom and God's upside-down people. See, the world has a different set of beatitudes, and the world would tell us that in order to be blessed, you live in a different type of way. The world's beatitude says, blessed are the self-confident because they rule the world. Blessed are positive thinkers because they don't need anybody's comfort. 
Blessed are the arrogant and the assertive because they get what they want. Blessed are those who hunger for fame because they get reality TV shows. Blessed are the vengeful because they get respect. Blessed are the impure because pleasure seekers, uh, pleasure seekers because they see a good time. Blessed are those who beat their opponents because the victors write the history books. Blessed are the popular because everybody loves them. And those who are living according to the world's beatitudes are those who are going to end up small-souled and self-centered and who may experience temporary bursts of happiness, but at the end of those bursts, deep unfulfillment and deep pain. What Harbor Network seeks to do is to help encourage pastors and to lark arms with pastors who want to experience Jesus' version of living and who want to experience the abundant life that he has to offer. And so we do this by providing rest, renewal uh, for your pastors regularly so that they can return. And we do this by providing rest and renewal for your leaders so that they can return to you and so that as they are doing ministry, they can experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. They can be big-souled and, and joy-filled, even in the midst of a broken world. And so that you can be cultivated by this gospel as well and have the same qualities. What it means to be blessed in this verse is, is a, a Greek word, uh, makarion. And this word, makariot, is a word that has more to do uh, with flourishing. Uh, to, to the Greeks, it was the ultimate uh, sign of someone who was, was satisfied or um, who was holistically healthy. And so Matthew uses this word, uh, and I like the transla translation flourishing, um, in order to communicate that those who are disciples of Jesus are those who are flourishing. And it's the same uh, kind of word that is used throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the Psalms, to talk about the people of God. So Psalm 1, blessed is the man, flourishing is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You know this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yield its fruit in its season, and his leaves shall not wither. It's this picture of a person who is flourishing uh, because they are receiving something that allows them to, to flourish, that allows them to, to bear fruit. And so Jesus' message on the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to his disciples to flourish, to experience human happiness in, in a supernatural way. And Jesus is going to show his disciples that the way in which they flourish is by building their lives on a sure foundation. That's how Jesus ends up, concludes the sermon, by inviting the disciples to build their life on a solid rock and not on sand. Now, it's important that we understand as we look at the Beatitudes that Jesus is not saying you are blessed because you are living up to something. This is not a works-based salvation. You are blessed because you are acting this way. The word for in the Greek can also be translated here, uh, hati, as because. 
Jesus is saying, no, you are flourishing not because you are living up to something, but because you are living into something. And as you live into something, you experience the joy of the kingdom. As you live into the way of Jesus, you experience, look at your Bibles, you experience the kingdom of heaven. You experience the comfort of heaven. You experience the reality that you inherit the earth. You experience the reality that you are filled or satisfied spiritually. You receive the reality of the fact that you have received the mercy of God. You receive the reality of seeing God. You receive the reality of the fact that you are a, a son or daughter of God, the sonship. You receive the reality of the fact that you are part of a, a larger community that has gone before you and suffered just as you are. So Jesus is inviting you into a lifestyle, BGC, of leaning into him and, and living in his kingdom uh, in a way that is low and cross-shaped. And that's what he's getting at. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, we read these words. Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's kind of the thrust of this sermon as Jesus is talking to this crowd who looked up to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By the way, they were uh, the, the Jewish people's heroes. Like we read it and we see people that we, because we have the picture and we know what Jesus was getting at, um, who are self-righteous. But, but the first century Jewish person looked at a, a Pharisee and a scribe and they said, this is what it means to be righteous. And Jesus is flipping things upside down, and he's saying, no, what you see from the Pharisees and the scribes is not a holy righteousness. It is a self-righteousness. It is a righteousness that is from the outside in and not from the inside out. And he says, if you want to be truly righteous, your righteousness cannot be lived for other people to pat you on the back. It cannot be lived so that you pray these long uh, 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 prayers where other people say, man, aren't you a powerful prayer? It cannot be lived in, in a way in which you are fasting or giving so, that, giving so that everybody will see you as a spiritual hero. No, the righteousness that is pleasing to God is an inner righteousness that doesn't come from what you do, but as a result of who you are in Him. And this righteousness is a righteousness that has certain attributes. Now, what's phenomenal about the Sermon on the Mount and what we miss is who are the people on this mount? If we go back to Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus is going to call his first disciples. In verse 19, it says, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So he's going to call multiple uh, groups of, of brothers to, to follow him. Those who are fishermen, he uses an analogy to get through to them. And he calls them to be his disciple. And the disciple is an apprentice who follows him, who is being transformed by him, and who is living their life on mission for him. We'll say that again. A disciple is a person who is following Jesus who is following Jesus in such a way that they are being transformed by Jesus and they have committed their life to living on mission for Jesus. 
And so after calling these disciples in verse 25 through verse 24, we read these words. And he went, listen to this, I'm almost finished, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him to Galilee and the Decapolis, from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so then we have in chapter 5, these people who literally are from an area of Israel, which was the most oppressed area in Israel. The Decapolis and Galilee, where they were, Nebulun and Zephyrtai, we see earlier on in the chapter, is uh, a place that was so worn down and beaten because it was an entrance place into uh, Israel. And so anytime Israel got into a, a fight or enemies wanted to uh, come and try to take over uh, their land, they would have to come that way. And so this community of people were trampled on, was, was constantly in, in bondage, was constantly fighting for their freedom. And Jesus starts his public ministry in, in many ways amongst them. And he goes to a place in Israel that is seen as the lowest of the lows, the poorest of the poor, the broken of the broken. And he goes around healing them. And he invites them into a mountain where he teaches his kingdom virtues and his kingdom values. And so imagine you're on this hill and you've, man, you've had a rough life. And you think that spiritual victory looks like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And all of a sudden, after literally being healed from being physically blind, from being, a, from being uh, paralyzed, from being demon-possessed, this sage sits down and he calls you blessed. He says, no, you all are the flourishing ones. You all are the ones that the kingdom of, of heaven is for. You all are the heroes of God. You all are the ones who are closest to uh, the kingdom of God. Jesus flips everything upside down, and his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom that you only enter through through a door that is low and cross-shaped. Jesus proclaims over them, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's look at some of these, these blessings. Flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we look at the term poor in spirit, we want to understand that Jesus preached his message probably, again, we see in Luke's gospel, uh, this same sermon, uh, some, some other things are, are, are missing, some things are added. He could have re-preached or it could have been Luke uh, just taking notes from the same sermon, we're not sure. But in Luke's gospel, he drops to the phrase poor in spirit and he simply says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. He doesn't add in spirit. And I think the point of the gospel writers is this. Those who are poor and in poverty, they live with a sense of neediness and dependency for an outside resource. Those who are in physical poverty 
are, are living in need of someone from the outside um, to, to help them. And Jesus is saying that those who are poor in spirit are those who are spiritually um, in tune with God because they, they know that they have a deep need of someone from the outside to make them right spiritually. And that wasn't the scribes and the Pharisees. They were self-righteous. Jesus constantly preached to them and he said, listen, I didn't come for those who are well, but for those who are sick, those who are poor in spirit. A picture of poor in spirit is Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, who is in the sanctuary, the temple of God, and who sees the glory of God fill the temple. And he comes in light of God's holiness to see himself And he cries out to God and says, I am an unclean man with unclean lips. I do not have a righteousness of my own to bring. God, I need you to make me clean. And those who enter into the kingdom of heaven are those who have come to a place that understand nothing to God I bring, only to the cross I cling. I have no righteousness of my own. I cannot work myself up to God. I need God's resources, God's righteousness, Jesus' blood to justify me and to make me clean. But not only is the person who is poor in spirit flourishing, that they're flourishing because they have entered into the kingdom of of heaven, but also blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, why are they mourning? Right? Another translation says, happy are the sad. Those who are are flourishing are those who, who live a life of mourning and brokenness because they understand that we all are living under the curse of the fall. That we are living in the in-between, between the already and the not yet. And in this broken world that is cursed by the fall, we experience brokenness. We are sinned against and we sin against others. We experience grief. We experience conflict. And we see other people experiencing these dynamics as well. So these people have been given a a heart that is low and cross-shaped as a result of the Holy Spirit. And they are in tune with the brokenness of the world. They are in tune with their own brokenness. And they are living in this paradox of happiness and sadness. And Jesus says, no, but you are flourishing if you are embracing the fact that you live in a fallen world, if you are embracing the fact that you sin against others and are sinned against, if you are embracing the fact that death is a reality and as a result of death, we grieve and lose people who are close to us. And the reason you are flourishing is not uh, because this is some quality that makes you right with God. The reason you are flourishing is because you are experiencing the the comfort of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, we, uh, we experience the God of all comfort. In our mourning, in the reality of seeing the brokenness of this world, we experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. As he came to the reality of his own sin, he began to weep and say, Lord, I am an unclean man with unclean lips. And the Bible says that the Lord uh, touched his mouth with coal and he purified him. He comforted him. And my question for you today is, are you poor in spirit? As even as you entered into the sanctuary, even as I stood up and gave you a, a hood welcome, what's up, what's popping, what's, pop what's crack-a-lacking, and talked in my natural vocabulary, was there a, a self-righteousness there or a, a judgment there? Are you sitting there today with something that says, I've arrived, I really don't have much to learn. I already know this. Are you embracing a posture of mourning? Are you looking at the world through kingdom eyes and allowing yourself to sit in the reality that even though you may be comforted with uh, where you are in life, that there are other people who are regularly experiencing deep brokenness and who need the gospel of Jesus? When was the last time you cried for the nations? When was the last time you cried because there was an abortion clinic in your city? When was the last time you cried because of the racial and ethnic turmoil of our country? When was the last time you wept because you realized the effects of the fall was at full effect? As we abide in Jesus, he makes us to, to be this type of person, to have these types of qualities as we sit as a people like a tree planted by streams of living water. Uh, our roots become strengthened and we become a wholehearted person who is tender to the suffering of others, who is able to be honest about our own humanity and our own brokenness and who can bring that to God and before others without guilt, fear, or shame, knowing that what makes us right is is not our performance, but what makes us right is his performance and what he's done for us. This is a bold sermon by Jesus. This is a disorienting sermon by Jesus. This is a wait, what is happening sermon by Jesus. Jesus is showing them a completely, a completely different way of relating to God and relating to others. He's saying what, what it means to be righteous is, is not to put on a show for others. What it means to be righteous is to kneel down in your heart daily before God and to enter into his presence in a way that is low and cross-shaped. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some translations say are the humble. Those are the people who are not living as if they have it all together or all figured out. Those are the people who, because they're spending time with Jesus, they are learning to live in tension. They're learning when to speak up and how to speak up. They're living in a way that acknowledges, listen to this, 
that they're just decorated dust? That's all we are is decorated dust. Now, y'all look good. Y'all good-looking decorated dust, but you decorated dust. That you're just a vapor, a mist, that a hundred years from now, it's a good chance that no one will remember you. They enter into conversations, as Paul says, as one who sees through a mirror dimly and not as the one who has the whole picture. Listen, a, a meek person, you heard this, is not a weak person, but it's a person who has controlled strength. You know, kindness takes strength. Meanness doesn't take strength, which is an oxymoron. When you're mean, you think that you're being strong. That's weakness. No, according to Jesus' way, kindness takes strength. It takes self-control, and self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Muhammad Ali, one of the meekest men who ever lived. Why are y'all laughing? Y'all so crazy? Muhammad Ali was on a flight. And the story is told that while he was on this flight, he didn't have a seatbelt on. And the stewardess came up to him and he said, "Uh, Sir, I'm going to need you to put on your seatbelt. To which he replied, Superman doesn't wear a (laughs) seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman doesn't need a plane. (laughs) Humility. Meekness. Is not thinking less of yourself. As C.S. Lewis says, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's that Philippians chapter 2. Do not count yourself as more significant than others. It's that Romans chapter 12, outdo one another by showing honor. What if the body of Christ actually lived out the Jesus way in those principles? I'm convinced that one of the worst things that have ever happened to the church is social media. Oh, it's tight, but it's right. Hello, lights. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Because we become Twitter thugs and, 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 and Facebook freaks and we hide behind a screen and we drop these bombs, we shoot these shotguns, we tell people what's on our mind, we look like the most cantankerous, bitter, unforgiving, unmerciful people and then in the next post we invite people to church. And Jesus, all the while, is interceding you for in heaven, praying for you, and looking at, at his children and saying, there is a better way, there is a kingdom way, a way that is poor in spirit, a, a, a way that enters into those spaces as, as those who are mourning, as those who are, are meek, as those who are lamenting the reality of the world and who aren't pointing people to uh, political strategy or political figures, but who are pointing people to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and saying there is only one hope and his name is Jesus. 
And his kingdom is a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken every four years. I got to move, amen. Really quick, I've got I've to move. Blessed, he says, blessed, happy, flourishing, happy and whole are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Those who, like the psalmist says, as a deer pants for the water, so, so my soul pants for you. Those who are living with a, a desperation before God and when their hearts are dry, who are not okay with staying there, but who get on their face and on their knees and say, Lord, I won't stop wrestling with you like Jacob until you bless me. I can't stay in this place of numbness. I can't stay in this place of spiritual apathy. I can't stay in this place of of being uh, self-centered and and, and selfish. I can't stay in this place of not pursuing you. So so they cry out to God, and God says, flourishing is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Sometimes in the Christian life, we feel famine. We feel as if we are not satisfied and full. We go through droughts. Every Christian does. But like Jesus, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, we work it out on our knees, saying, Jesus, I need you. Now, this hunger and thirst after righteousness is not just a moral righteousness, a vertical uh, righteousness, where it's just between us and God. It's also a horizontal righteousness. Righteousness that is simply vertical and never horizontal is not righteousness. John Stott says it like this, It would be a mistake to suppose, however, that the biblical word righteousness means only a right relationship with God on the one hand and a moral righteousness of character and conduct on the other. For biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social righteousness, as we learn from the prophets, from the law, first four commandments are all vertical, the next uh, six are uh, horizontal, pointing to our, the way we relate to others. As we learn from the law and from the prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealing, and honor in home and family affairs. Jesus is creating a wholehearted people who understand that the way in which we are called to live is to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the last one I'm going to go through, and then I'll just summarize the rest because I'm out of time. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed. Flourishing happy and whole are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, merciful. Some of us right now feel that tension in our heart as we are at war with our spouse. Blessed are the merciful, 
Some of us feel the, the Spirit edging us on as we are at war with our neighbor right now, literally neighbor, because of something that they did or the way that they neighbor. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Later on in Matthew 18, Jesus is going to tell a story about a servant who owes his master a debt, 20 years worth of denarii or money. And the master comes to him and says, I'm going to sell you, your family, and your children if you do not pay today. And this servant got on his knees, the Bible says, and he pleaded with his master to, to have mercy on him, to give him more time to pay his debt. And the Bible says that the, the master was moved by his pleading and he forgave him and he forgave his debt. And listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. Verse 20 says, And the man fell down and cried out, Be patient with me, and I will repay you everything. Then the master of the servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him. And in the very next verse, you guys know the story. The same man who was forgiven of 20 years worth of debt sees a man who owes him one day's wage, and he chokes him, and he demands that he pays him. And Jesus called the man wicked. He says, how can you be a person, in essence, who, who claims to be in the kingdom of God and you've received so much mercy and you can't be merciful to someone who owes you a day's wage worth? Those who are in the kingdom of God are those who are merciful and they're not merciful by their own strength. They're merciful because the mercy of Jesus has transformed them. They're merciful because they, by the grace of God, has entered into a door that is low and cross-shaped, and they keep their eyes on the cross and what Jesus did before them, and they live a life that is low and cross-shaped. They're not living a life standing over other people, demanding that people prove their love, prove their affection, prove their salvation to them. They are living in a way that is humble and that says, I don't deserve anything that I have. God has been merciful to me. I am going to extend mercy to you. You slap me on my cheek, I'm going to turn the other cheek and allow you to slap me because I slapped Jesus on his cheek and he turned the other cheek. You asked me to go one mile, I'm going to go two miles because I have been transformed by Jesus. And we can conclude the rest of these verses in the same spirit that Jesus is inviting us into a way of living. And when we live this way, we are salt and light to the world. When we live this way, co-workers say, there's something different about you. When we live this way, parents say, yeah, you, you've been transformed. You aren't the person that I raised. When we live this way, both Democrats and Republicans begin to ask us questions because they can't figure us out. Because we care about man's condition 
in such a way that it doesn't always fit into a neat little box. When we live this way, we'll hear people say the words, what must I do to be saved more often? And the way that we live that way is not by white knuckling it. It's not by trying harder. (laughs) It's by living on our knees in a way that is low and cross-shaped. It's by abiding in Christ, knowing that he promises that if you abide in me and my words in you, that you will bear much fruit. You say, Pastor Jamal, I hear you, but this just seems so impossible. And I'm telling you, in your own strength, it is impossible. But through Christ, all things are possible. So my invitation to you is twofold. One, enter into the kingdom of God through a door that is low and cross-shaped if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to become one by humbling yourself, seeing that you are a sinner in need of God's grace, that you could never earn your way to God. And that there is only one way to be made right with God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus and. It's not Jesus and Buddha. It's not Jesus and my good works. It's Christ and Christ alone. And if you cry out to him, he will save you. He will not forsake you. He will give you life and life more abundantly. He will give you a joy that the world didn't give and the world cannot take away. And I'm not promising that your problems will go away. But what I can promise you is that if you look to him in the midst of your trial, Your pain will not be wasted. He will shape you and form you into the image of himself, which is the most beautiful image there is. That's why he can say, blessed are the persecuted. Flourishing are the persecuted. Second, I want to invite you just to embrace your low and cross-shaped call every single day. That's why prayer is so important. Living in the presence of God with a a activeness is so important. We cannot be passive. Taking time, even if it's just a moment when you wake up in the morning to acknowledge the Spirit's presence to acknowledge that you have desires and you have plans, but that the Spirit may have other plans for you, to open your hands and to let loose of control and to realize that you are Jesus's and he is yours and to live out of that humility with a sense of peace and purpose so that he can powerfully work through you. This takes intentionality. This takes slowing down. This takes trust. But Jesus is trustworthy, amen? He's trustworthy because he did for us what no one else could do. Jesus is trustworthy, isn't he? He proved his trustworthiness when he went down to Via Dolorosa, that road of sorrow. Jesus is trustworthy, isn't he? 
He showed us that he was trustworthy when he allowed his back to be whipped open with 39 lashes save one. He showed his trustworthiness when he allowed his body to be hung high and dropped low in the heat of the day. He showed his trustworthiness when he allowed a crown of thorns to be placed on his head. He showed his trustworthiness when he allowed all of God's wrath to be poured out on him so that you, when you look to him by faith, can go free and not be condemned. He showed us trustworthy when he allowed his, his body to be put in Joseph's tomb. But on a third day, he rose with all power. He shows his trustworthiness to you every single day when you cry out to him, Abba, by faith, and he comforts you and reminds you that you belong to him. Jesus is trustworthy. Look to him. Our vision at Harbor is to be a part of a group of like-minded churches who are concluding that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who are seeking to live with a humble spirituality. Who realizes that we need each other. And that the world is hitting us with a wave after wave after wave of this is what it means to have true happiness. And we can say, no, this is what it means to live with true happiness. And even though we might not be, we may be outnumbered, God has never needed to be in a majority. He took 12 disciples and turn the world upside down and he can do a lot with us as his remnant as we pursue the real Jesus not his silhouette not even an Americanized version of him but a Jesus whose kingdom is without borders let's pray Jesus you are faithful you invite us into a way of living that is countercultural and crazy, but you are faithful. You are good. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look to you. Help us to be strengthened by you so that we can build our house on a firm foundation so that when the winds come and the waves knock against us, our faith will remain. Lord, I pray 10 years from now that every single person in this room will be a better version of themselves in you. That they'll have more peace and more joy and that the anchor would continue to hold. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.